Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. The Eastern Museum of Motor Racing, or EMMR for short, is built on a wooded hillside overlooking the historic Latimer Valley Fairgrounds and Racetrack. The 40-acre fairgrounds and track are restored to their original beauty, creating an atmosphere that makes the EMMR a living museum. Several times a year, the EMMR holds events where these historic cars can be seen on the track. The Eastern Museum of Motor Racing is proud to be the home of the Chris Enomaki Collection, a noted motorsports journalist and editor of National Speed Sports News. The library contains the Central States Racing Association paperwork, the racing columnist Bob Chorpening's collection, the collection of noted historian Joe Heisler, while the Jerry Rigel Research Room contains the EMMR's vast photographic collection. There's an estimated 20,000 photographs in the collection, along with a vast variety of vehicles on display to include a great collection demonstrating the 100 years of dirt track racing. And with us for a special guided tour is Dirt Track Hall of Famer and former curator for the museum, Lynn Paxton. Lynn, tell us about your racing past. You were in the dirt overworld. Your car's here on display. Yeah, I, I was born about four miles from Williams Grove. And my dad had the last garage and auto cart on the way to the Grove. As a boy growing up, I got to see a lot of the, the early racers from the early 50s coming through and stuff. So it interests me. So I rode my bike over to Williams Grove to see what was going on. And I got hooked. What else can I say? Then my career started in 1961. I got to run a mechanics race at Silver Springs. Once I drove one time, I knew that's what I wanted to do instead of just working on it. So we built an old car in 62 and then branched out in 63 a little bit and then moved up in 64 to the old Supers. We just went with the flow up until sprint cars came in in the late 60s. Pretty successful up until last race I ran was 1983. I won the national open at the Groves. So we had 23 years wow. a good career. So what then changed, what inspired you to open this museum? I was always a history buff. Always loved it. Even while I was racing, my fond memories were of Tommy Hendershits in the 50s when he was a very dominant player. And then I got to be racing out in Ohio, an all-star race or something, and I happened to run into an old Hilligus car, which I happened to recognize. They were built in Allentown. And I went over and talked to the guy that had it out there. He told me it was original Tommy Hendershits as well. That would have been the car I watched. So I came home and called Hendershits and asked him, is it possible? He basically told me the same thing in reverse. And then he told me the one sure thing to look for was the horn steering that he had bought out of the car horn was killed in. And if it was still in the car, it was the car. The next week we went out to Mansfield, Ohio to run an all-star race. I went over and looked and sure enough it had the horn steering in it. So it was definitely the car. So I negotiated to buy the damn thing and restore it. I just like the old cars. Hilligus was quite a mystery. I have a pretty good register on a lot of the cars that were built now in town. Uh, he built roughly 200 cars in his career. So here we stand amongst all these historic race cars. So why don't you take us well, on a tour of the historic race cars right in this room right here. You talk about uniforms. Here you got Ted Horn, national champion, Tommy Hendershits, Mario Andretti. You've got some pretty dynamite uniforms hanging in here. 
Johnny Thompson back there. These are all Hall of Famers. There's Billy Pouch, Dave Blaney, Smokey Snellbaker. There you got Wolfgang Kinzer. You know, you can have quite a race by the Just people the represented in, yeah. in this room. I get them to come in. I always try to hit them up for a uniform if we have them here. So everything here is donated then? Yeah, yeah. Same way with the cars. Our signage is very good in our cars. The bottom row will tell you if it's on loan from or donated by. So here we are at the entryway, right? Kind of an eclectic blend of motorcycles. Our entry is, and that kind of a, a jack-of-all-trades out here. I try to put something different in here every year. We have sprint car, we have a midget motorcycles engine. The police motorcycles in there because Mike Worland was our police chief here and his son was killed with that bike on a tour about 10 years ago. Mike just bought it from the police deal and he asked if we could set it in here and I said, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's more of a little local flavor right here. We do things like that. Like I said, we try to change things in this window to entice people because this is always open. You yeah. can always come in to here. We try to get you to sign in or what have you, and then go from here. Now, this area here, the Latimer Valley Fairgrounds, that preceded Williams Grove. It was built in 1925 and actually went head-to-head -head with Williams Grove in 39. But these are all pictures as we restored the old fairgrounds. We did that first before we built the museum. Oh, wow. So the fairgrounds is restored back to the 20s and 30s. They're going to be running cars tomorrow down there, the ARDC reunion. This area here, we honor somebody for the year. Stan Lobitz is a big supporter of ours from Hazleton. This was his car and his stuff. He raised a lot of money for us over the years. And then our grand marshal this year is Kenny Brent. Kenny's 95 years old, and this was one of his cars. He was in racing since 1953, all phases. Yeah, just a tremendous gentleman. So this opening display here changes every year. You said you have a plan. Change, on... Yeah, th this will change in December. Do you have a plan on who's going to be here next year? I do not know. I won't know until I have an idea, but I don't know until it goes in front of the board. But we always change for our uh, December, our Christmas deal. This has always changed for the next year. So this is our midget area. The first car we come on here is a three-quarter midget. This was Mario Andretti's very first open-wheel ride. It's a Hilligus car with a 603 Triumph motorcycle engine. Next car up, very early midget, 1937. This has a Van Blurk single overhead cam boat motor. you got to remember, the midgets use a smaller engine, and you're going to see about every different type of engine used at that cubic inch rate, okay? Now, this next one's the one I told you has this Alto outboard, and this was the 1941 3A Eastern Championship car. That's the Gordon Racing Team. Yes. And the name Gordon Racing, they named it after the street that they were on in Allentown. Now, this is 1937 Midget with a little V860, like Henry put in his force from 37 to 40 as an economical piece. They weren't worth a hoot. But in the Midgets, they, were, Quick, they yeah. weren't good. This one's kind of neat. It's got BMW, World War II BMW motorcycle cylinders, and they made a block and crank back in the 40s. So it's made much like a Volkswagen, okay? Fritz Meyer and uh, Joe Gertler built the chassis. So it's actually two BMW motorcycle engines. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. They just made a common block. Now this has got a Ford tractor engine, little Fergie, which had the right cubic inch. Of course, the next two are offy powered. In the early 30s, they, they needed a, a small engine, so they went to Miller. Miller had a straight eight, 183, and he whacked 
that in half and just used the front half of it and became a 97 and then they got larger but of course they set the standard for years and years that's what those the oftenhausers yeah. Uh, yeah yeah the constant hot car like i said that was a 1950 championship car and then the uh, 11 car that's the car that mario andretti won three races in one day in this car right here and you guys call that the three-in-one midget? They call all their stuff after that three-in-one, the Metaka brothers, because Mario won three races in one day. He's not a very big guy. You look at Mario. <laughs> no, he wasn't. So tell us about Tommy's garage here behind us. Tommy was seven-time Eastern champion. When we did our deal here, Mario called him a giant. Chris Economy called him a star. A.J. Foyt called him his idol. So when you get those caliber guys talking about Tommy Hendershits, that's pretty good. Now, here's a picture in 1955 of Hendershitz's garage. What we actually did is went down and pulled all this stuff out of his garage. Everything works, too. The lathe and everything is operable. And the car, that's the car I think I told yeah. you about. This is the car that I restored. It has the horn steering and stuff in it. So as we see it here is exactly how you would have seen it when Tommy was using it at the original location. There you go. Right there. Very I mean, cool. That, you're seeing everything right there. So now, this predates when you started racing, though. This is still the oh, 50s. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder how difficult they were to drive. Well, I've driven a few of them. They were a handful. No protection. Skinny-ass tires. Back then, it, it took a set of gonads to drive a race car. I've how sort. much horsepower do you think these made back then? Oh, 200. Wow. That's about what these put out. But at the time, that was... That was good. And probably about 1,000 pounds, right? So power to weight ratio. Uh, this is probably closer to 1,300, 1, Still, that's a good, oh, yeah. good ratio. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, this is all stuff that we got out of Tommy's garage. And this is all information on Tommy. This is the guy that did a lot of the motorcycles and stuff. He built everything by hand. He did a lot of things for us. Everybody likes to sit in that car. There's Jack Hewitt. There's Sammy. Doug Wolfgang, there's Kinzer, Jeff Gordon, a young Jeff Gordon. You know, we've had a lot of people sitting in that car. Enrico Abreu, and like I said, I had him in, he was sitting in it. This is the Chitwood car. Actually, it was Briggs Cunningham's very first race car, the sports car guy. Money was no object with him, but he kind of fell in love with dirt track racing. And then later on, it was Chitwood car. Actually, his last sprint car, Chitwood, ran until he kind of retired to run his thrill show. The trophies and all that stuff, so all the horn stuff. Ted Horn, I actually had the horn car here, and we rotated it out, but I left all the trophies and stuff. Horn was killed in 48. Up on top of that case is a tail off the car he was killed in. For all his trophies and stuff. We have the largest collection of Ted Horn stuff there is, and we just got more in. And his national championship shirt. Area right here is Ken Hickey. He was the offy man around here. That was a young Ken, and there he was, 87 years old, still working on him. He's a famed he, in engine builder, he said. Yeah, yeah. He rebuilt the off engines. He was from Ambler, and I don't need to tell you where Ambler is. You know where Ambler is. Matter of fact, this one of the last engines he did. That's a Ken Hickey fresh engine right there. We have this Edmunds midget. I like it because the last race it run, it got put away for 36 years. They just never ran it again, and then lucky enough to buy the whole deal. And so it's exactly the way it won its last race. And this is a Volkswagen flat-four-powered midget car. Well, it has a Volkswagen in it, of which is this is. And, of course, this is a Sesco, a flat Sesco. Now, Sesco's usually were half a Chevy, but he wanted to make it lower, so this has got all Chevy parts in that Ron Hoddles built these. 
out in Wisconsin. And then he had two left, so he brought one in and gave one to us. So here on the left, it says Hershey Stadium. Tell us about that. I don't think a lot of people realize there was a racetrack at Hershey. Well, it was built where the Hershey Stadium is. was built for auto racing and sporting events. And these are all pictures. The first event there was an auto race, same week that Williams Grove opened in May of, of 1939. So there's a picture of them building it, and there it is finished. Of course, now it's concerts and football games and stuff. But at one time, the last race was held there, I think, in 1983. I got to run there, and I won a few features there. Very cool. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Here's the horn tail, and here was the hub of the spindle broken horn's car. These goggles went with him on his last ride. Now, here we are at the, at the very early sprint cars. This was called a bobtail. In the 20s, this thing was unbeatable. John Gerber from Davenport, Iowa. There's John with his helmet, his goggles, and his bow tie. You notice he always wore a bow tie. I wouldn't call that much of a helmet. I wouldn't call that much of a race car. But it was light, apparently very quick. Yeah, he really went good with it. The car in here, that's a dryer. That's one of the first six dryers ever made. Pop started building cars in 1928. That car sat for 84 years in Davenport in the racing shop. Here's pictures of it. In October, we went out, and that's the first time in 84 years it came out of the shop. Well, I have it all on video. Matter of fact, that's his son. That's John Gerber's son, Jim, and he's 87 years old right now. So is this one of the newest acquisitions in the museum then? Yes, yes. This display just got put in in the spring here. And then all this stuff right here is stuff we brought home from out there at the shop. That's one of the first six built. He actually bought this car. He was running two of these, and he actually was running against this car. And then he ended up buying this because he wanted to make an Indy car. And this was going to be his Indy car. He lost Jimmy Snyder, who was, who was supposed to be his driver. He was in the connecting rod business for the Model B Fords. And World War II came around, and he got to working for the government stuff. So... This thing just sat and sat and sat. So it's kind of interesting that it stayed. So that We were very thrilled to be able to go out and pick that up. It's a joint deal we did with the Sprint Car Hall of Fame in Knoxville. We did a display out there, and they have the car that won the opener to Grove, and we rotate displays. It's better for us to work very well with them Absolutely. than we do. These are their early cars, 20s, okay? And then this car here would be from actually the 40s. And it has a Ranger aircraft engine. It's an inline uh, six, right? It's an inline six. See the prop one went on here. That would top front, mm -hmm. and the, you know you got to flip it over. Or where the propeller is. Yeah. Right, right. Thing looks heavy, but only weighed 375 pounds because it's magnesium. It put out the same horsepower as the $4,000 Offenhauser. But after World War II, they surplus these. You can buy them for 75 bucks. So if you were running IMCA or CSRA, there was no cubic inch limit. Shit, they were buying them and just running the crap out of them, you know, at that kind of money. Now, 3A, you couldn't run them because the cubic inch limit. They were probably pretty high rev being in a... No, they were very low rev. Really? Yeah. They put their horsepower out at about 2,800 RPMs. Now, I asked a couple of the old guys that ran them, I said, how hard did you turn your engine? And the guy said, oh, I turned mine over 4,000. Was it still, he said, they were still strong, but he said, when I couldn't see out of my goggles from the vibration, that it was too much. That was the answer. I love all the creative ways they did carburation on these motors. Nothing, well, nothing standard. It's all, all well, very interesting. It was all homemade. It was no, they finally started making 
aftermarket stuff for the bees because there was so much of it. But you're right, this is a homemade for three twos. Actually, in that one case, there was a set of Hillborn injectors for one of these, which is very rare. This has got Solex carburetors on it. These are actually original to this car. The header and stuff, this thing ran a Ranger in it. You know, you looked at the Chitwood car back there with all the chrome and stuff on it. Most of the cars of the 40s and stuff were just plain James, painted like this, Ford wire wheels and stuff. Now, the exotic cars were pretty like that. 80% of them were like this car here. The number four car here from the 40s, kind of the tail end of that, and we jumped yeah. to the number 39. So have we moved from the 40s to the 50s? Well, we're actually going up to the 60s. The 50s, I had a car here, it had to leave. You'd have to put like the miracle power in here. Gotcha. Okay. In other words, 40s, early 50s, yep. and then this would be 60s. But you do see a radical jump in design from the oh, absolutely. Cars. absolutely. They've got lower centers of gravity, well, different suspension. Well, we're going to walk up here now. These cars here would have won a wing or not. I didn't put wings on them simply because you get to see a little bit better. And my car there, the Boops car, we let anybody who wants to get in it get in it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you kind of transition from these 40s sprint cars to the 50s and 60s, they're more like the Indy cars of the time if you kind of look at them in well, comparison, right? you got to remember something. World War II. Most of the cars prior to World War II were kind of crude. There were some nice cars, but most of them were home-built nothings, okay? All the racers went to World War II, and they learned how to work aluminum and use Zeus buttons, and my God, we're still using surplus from World War II today, and that's what spawned racing. After World War II, all of a sudden, the cars, they started using the technology to build aircrafts, Zeus buttons, aluminum and stuff, and that's when things drastically changed. Absolutely. Why? Technology, learning how to work aluminum. Probably was the Well, yeah, but all I can tell you is there was a lot of experimentation around here on fuel. If you tell Hendershitz, tell them a story about running these Model T, and they didn't know anything about hopping the fuel up, and they heard that if you used mothballs, had ether in it. So he said about they bought a bunch of mothballs. The problem was they were only going to put one in. One mechanic put one in, didn't tell anybody. The other mechanic put one in, and he said, I put one in. He said, man, we took the lead. That thing was really hauling ass. And he said about halfway through the race, it slowed down to a crawl. It burnt the thing up. But that experimentation went on for a long time. Talking about that, I could show you the horn pistons over here. He was the first one to experiment with magnesium pistons. They were so much lighter than aluminum that he could turn his engine 2,000 RPMs more. And I have those. But he had to experiment with the fuel because he kept melting the tops of the pistons. They weren't as strong as the aluminum. He entered into a lot of that too. Now as far as World War II, you're right. The Germans were far ahead of everybody as far as that technology. Let's face it, that's where the Volkswagen came from. On a lot of these, you notice that there's a lot of armature in the way of levers and things like that to move things around. It's all very crude and very simple because they're race cars. How many of these are let's say manual gearboxes? How many speed are they and when did they transition to the more like power glide they, type transmission? There was a rule that they had to be able to back up and stuff, so they had old Ford transmissions in them. But then finally it got to the point where they were just using them in and out. In other words, they're just high gear. Got it. Like if you come up to these, these all have quick changes, nothing but in and out direct drive. So you took a couple laps to get up to speed then to kind of set your pace because you can't just well, you, go at full no, they would, they <laughs> would, uh No, they would push you off, yeah. and if you had heat in the motor, 
like my mechanic used to tell me, if you don't have 140 degrees, I don't care if the green flag's out or what, you don't run the motor, you know, just to protect it. You know, Davey's still a pretty sharp man, Davey Brown. So you definitely see a drastic change in safety oh, in this absolutely. period, too. My first ride actually was in the car after this, the Cook car. And I think there's a picture up front here of the start of the feature. That's yeah, right there. Here's my very first sprint car ride. That's the start of the feature at Allentown. Wow. I'm in the 38 car, clear out there. Taking the high line. <laughs> I didn't want to, but that 24 car kind of came in and about put me over the wall. That was the start. Now, I was running super modifieds and stuff around here, but that was my first sprint car ride. So what but, would you say after all your years of racing, what was your biggest oops moment? Oh, I don't know. There was plenty of them. <laughs> I can't really pick an oops moment out uh, other than waking up in the hospital one morning and uh, not know how I got there. Okay. Yikes. I'll tell you the story. It, I didn't realize it, but I apparently got hurt pretty bad at Hagerstown till I came to. I was in kind of intensive care. There was two of us in there, and I woke up, and I, my hand was bandaged, and I had a schmock on it said Washington County. Well, I was smart enough to know that Washington County was the Hagerstown area. I wasn't in Pennsylvania. The guy that was in the room with me, he started having a problem. So I, they had a button pinned there, so I pushed the button. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Nurse comes in and said, are you all right? I said, I'm all right, but this guy's having a problem. So the next thing I knew, man, there was people in there working on him, and he was gone. Now, I got more questions than answers. I didn't say a word while that was going on. And they were taking him out, and the last nurse was just getting ready to walk out. I said, ma'am, can I talk to you? She said, sure. I said, what am I doing? She said, don't you know? I said, no. I said, I just basically woke up. And she said, well, I don't know. My shift changed at 1 o'clock, and you were here. That was it. She left. Needless to say, I wasn't going back to sleep. I'm trying to figure it all out. The next morning, there was a guy coming around selling crap out of a cart, newspapers and stuff. So I bought a newspaper, went to the racing deal, and there I found out exactly what had happened. I read it in the newspaper. About a half hour later, the promoter and my wife and the doctor came walking in, and the doctor said, do you remember? I didn't. But I told him exactly what the newspaper said, and that got me out of the hospital. Probably shouldn't have, because if I'd lean over, I'd fall, it screwed up my... What kind of headgear did you have? Helmet? Bell helmet. Okay. At the time, it was as good as it was. The problem is, once you get your bell wrong once, the next ones, you get knocked out a whole lot quicker. It's just like quarterbacks. And that's why you had a lot of guys who retired early, because another blow to the head would be a headache to you, but a guy that's had a lot of blows to the head, it can mean... Paralysis, it can mean every. I don't know how we get off on that tangent. But well, let's go back to your timeline a little bit. So yeah. you started in the early 60s, and yeah. you ran all the way up through? 1983. Well, I won the National Open. That's the last race I ran. Actually, we uh, won the National Open in this car in 1982. It's restored. This car here is sitting here. We left the wing off, and I have the Nerf bar off. If anybody wants to sit in that car, welcome to get in it. So how many championships under your belt? I don't know exactly. 9, 10, 11, wow. in that range somewhere. So as we get to the early 80s car, this is more like what people are accustomed to seeing, like the world of outlaws. Well, well, yes. This, of course, was Steve Kinzer was the multi-time world of outlaws champion. And I like this car because it's not restored. It's all original, and it's just the way he won Syracuse in 88. So that, this is car is pretty neat. Then we have uh, Greg Hodnett's car. Uh, Greg, of course, got killed a few years ago, and... We did a special 
display his cars. We have four of them here. Coming up through the era of non-aero cars to basically aero cars, how did the racing improve? Did you like it better the more aero they got added, or did you like it in the good I things? think the racing was better without the wings. Just by adding a wing, and you can gain two seconds a lap, just by putting the foil on, it just made it racing so much faster, and it made it safer. The wings would not let the car do anything radical. After the wings gone, yes. I've been upside down both ways. And that big old thing right there is just like a cushion. I said one time I hit, I could hear the air going out of the wing. Of course, the guy said, you still got a brain injury, you know, but it's true, you could, you could hear that. Well, we all got brain injuries, right? We're race car drivers. I think you're right. We started with that from the beginning. I think you're right. So as you kind of progress here, this takes us into another part of the museum. Yeah, this is Sprint Car 101 from the very early, boom, boom, boom. You can get a very good idea of the changes. Now, I'm not saying I have every change exactly, but I try to keep it. It's a good summary of 100 years of sprint cars. Yes, yes. This is car Freddie Raymer, won a lot of races in. Of course, young Freddie's winning now, the boy. But this was the old man. And this was actually the first car Hamilton donated to us. We have another one over in our storage unit. And this was Greg Hodnett's car. And Raymer actually won in this car, too. Kenny Jacobs drove this one. And this is the... Hodnett car, the Apple Chevrolet car. So did you ever run any late models or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah? What do you think of those compared to the Sprinters? I can't speak on today's late models. They're such unbelievable. The stuff that we ran were just 55, 57 Chevys, you know, basically with a good motor in. It's hard to say. I used to do double duty, run both divisions. And it was at that point, it wasn't hard. It's probably harder to do now. Probably felt safer in a late model, though, right, overall? Because you're in a bigger... If you worry about safety, then you better <laughs> not get in one. I mean, you don't want to climb in something that you think you're going to get hurt in, but if you think you're going to get hurt, even goes through your mind, you better not get in one. Hurt is something that's always going to happen to somebody else. Yeah. That is the mentality that you have to have. It's part of the game sometimes, but... I do notice that as you get further down in the transition of the sprint cars, a lot of things become more and more inboard, more center of gravity type of manipulation yeah, well, here. The brakes are inboard compared to being on the out, you know, the outside yeah, of the well, car, things like that. See the tether on the steering arm right there? Mm -hmm. And that's all because a Goldrick radius rod came in, and that's what killed him. I mean, it wasn't a bad accident. It's just he got pierced. So they started doing things like that. So the pieces didn't fly. The old cars, 200 horsepower or so, and then obviously horsepower increases. Yeah, well, when we're standing here well, with now, these. Come on over here. How much are these making? 700, let's say? Oh, more than that. This is our engine wall. That's Henry Ford, and the mass production of the Model T. Built 15 million of them between 1908 and 1927. Now, here's 100 years. Here's a small block Chevy, 8, 900 horsepower. This is what your basic engine today is. So you're looking at 100 years. 20 horsepower, 8, 900 horsepower. So here, Model T, there's the Model T rock arm, Model T dual overhead cam. This is interesting. Front neck was the one that built that for, for the Ford, you know, Model T. That's a mechanical you, you, turbo? No, this is a Magneto ah. and a water pump. Oh, okay. Now you're looking at crude here. Don't get, don't, you know, you, you know, what you see is what you get here. But what a lot of people don't know who Front neck was. Front neck was the Chevrolet brothers. They had already lost their name to Durant and General Motors. The best Ford speed equipment built for a Ford in the late 20s was built for the Chevrolet Brothers. A lot of people don't know that, but that's a fact. You were looking at the solar car. Well, this is 
the chassis, of course there's the body. It doesn't look right sitting here amongst these old engines, but it's the only place I had to put it. I stuck it in here. The colleges once a year would race a solar car. This one raced from St. Louis to LA, I think in 99, it tells you that on the back of it. But they built it and raced it. How fast would it go? 60, 70 mile an hour. That's quick if it, for a know, solar power car. If the sun was out bright. And, now I know one thing, those are all solar panels and we let that thing sit outside and you go to pick it up, you gotta watch. It'll, it bite, you. It'll yeah. bite you. Yeah. yeah. But then you looked at the bobtail, the Gerber. That's that 490 Chevy that he patterned a single overhead cam for. His stuff was crude, but he put that stuff together and went out and ran with the Offenhausers, the big money stuff. You know, that was a David and Goliath. And his stuff was that way. He just always did it that way. Then you have the Model A and you do the same thing up to the dual overhead cam. And the Flatheads and the Hudsons and the Buicks and the Oldsmobiles and Flathead, the Arden Flathead, Ford, Marine Engine. This is the very first Chevy V855. That's what came in the Corvette, right? No, they were in the Chevrolet. They did put them in the Corvette, but not the later on. Actually, in 55, the first ones were all sixes. They actually built a V8 in the late teens. It wasn't as successful as this one was, you know. And there's 65 years of small block Chevy from here to that. Very cool. This is a ZL1, the all-aluminum big block. That's what we ran in my car. And then Yanko bought that from General Motors. Same motor, same part number. The only thing he, Yanko put his name on the front of it. And then I ran his motors until uh, he got killed in a uh, plane crash. So that in our association. That was 1983. So the room we're standing in here is now we transition to drag cars. Drag cars, yeah. Like this Chevelle right here, this is all fiberglass. But you look at it, there's no engine in the front. Got a mid-engine Hemi. It's really a beautiful car. You know, it's home built. Then we have Styles's performance the Hemi drag car, and then there's another Mopar over there. Then we have, of course, Bruce Larson's match race car here. They put his century car down in the Smithsonian. In this case here is all on Bruce. Then we have the Linwood dragster. This is a Linwood chassis too, and altered. The little altered Bantam, that's a Jersey Jimmy. It originally had a six-cylinder Jimmy engine. Then they put the straight-eight Buick, and then the last they ran it with that Aston Martin. Now you talk about light, 900 pounds, I think it's light. I love the uh, Aston Martin badge on the front on the grill, that's great. Now you want to walk upstairs? Sure. Okay, let's go with the elevator. Here's the original building that we were just in. Okay, and there's the road down and the racetrack is down below. Like I said, we're going to be running the cars tomorrow. Are you guys televising the races at all? Or no, is anybody recording no, no, them or no, anything? No. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. This is basically our stock car area. We all started with the old coupes like that, with the flathead and then the overhead. And then they started cutting the cars up, they called them bugs, and then the bodies were getting hard to come by, so they called them super modifieds. And that's what these two are. They didn't need a body, you just wrapped aluminum around. They had a 90 inch wheelbase, 30 inch roll cage, and that was it. And then from this, then you went sprint car racing or stock car race. That's kind of how things went. Of course, here were two Redding stock cars, the Gerhardt number five and the Johnny Botts number two. Now, after Botts, he was killed. I did run this car, and I ran the second car for Gerhardt several times. When our sprint car season would close, we'd get out and run Redding, run heavies. 
if I'm not incorrect, the back end of that is a Pinto, and this one looks like part of a Pacer? Yes. Yeah. Gremlin. Pintos, Vegas, they were the three. They just used body panels. and Nobody wanted them for anything else, right? Well, now try to find them in a junkyard. We built this in 2000, and the reason that it's two-story is we got into bedrock back here. We couldn't go far, so we decided to raise and then build off the next level. So that's why you see what you see. It just keeps going. Yeah. This just came in. This was Charlie Wehrman's late model. When I started running late models, I ran against Charlie, and he won multi-time championships down in Beltsville. He ran dirt and pavement both with this car. In Beltsville and Manassas, Virginia, he was track champion there. Now, there he was with these 56. That's when I ran against him. That's what I ran against. This is one of our Grand National cars. We have some more over in the other shed. This is a car that, yes, Elliot, there he was flipping it at Talladega. That is this car. Looks like you have some bikes, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bowling Green Speedway was right below York, and this is the only car that ran at Bowling Green still exists. Let me show you what it looked like. He it's actually a pile went in, of dirt. He went in, yeah, he went in the side of a building. It was laying in a dirt floor. Also, if you see the other Gary car over there, if you go look at that, both of these cars should never have been fixed. The time and effort they went to put them back together is unbelievable. It's dedication. This is Ray Tilly's. Now, that would be a, a good candidate down there right near the 39 was down there but we did a special tribute to the owner of the car here and we brought that one in andretti car upstairs but this was ray tilly he was about unbeatable with it bud grim ford this we built in 2011 that was the car mario won his very first sprint car race in, out at salem indiana in 1964. has mario ever come down to the museum he is scheduled to be here he sent us money for a block and stuff and we have a wall but we honored him last year, but he has not made it yet. His neighbors all have, but he has not. Now this right here is our Bonneville stuff. That bike set records at Bonneville. That's a tire blown at 400 mile an hour. And it held air, thank God. Didn't kill the guy. You've even yeah. got a snowmobile over there. Yeah, well, AMF, <laughs> where they build Harleys, AMF owned it. A bunch of us in the wintertime, we signed on and raced snowmobiles in the wintertime all over the country. Bruce Larson, me, Bob Schalich, Mitch Smith, and Smokey Snellbaker. We all raced uh, motorcycles, or uh, snowmobiles, too. Gettysburg Region, this is their home base, too, so we let them have their car in there. Looks like you guys have a library as well. Yes, yes. Steve Bubb's our librarian. Steve just went in there. He's always working in there. That's Steve in there. He's our resident expert. When we can't find anything, we talk to Steve. Do you right. guys take donations for the library? Oh, sure. It's stuff's coming in all the time. You'll see when we go over in a new place over here, there's stuff that they just haven't been able to look through. Well, let's keep going. That's on the Altoona Board Speedways. The Board Speedways were the super speedways back in the teens and the 20s. They were running 140 mile an hour in the boards, and they weren't running 100 at India. So that's similar to like the cyclodromes where they did the bicycles now this and were, stuff? Cyclodromes were built just for bicycle racing. Yeah. Okay. These were actually built for autos and stuff. They were anywhere from a half mile to two miles. Wow. All made out of wood. All made out of wood. Yeah. This is our Indy car area. That was the start of the first race at Indy. You see, it was mostly stripped down stock cars. The winner was Ray Haroon in that 32 back there. It wasn't until the 20s when Miller and Duesenberg started building. This is a Miller from the 20s. 
when they started going away from just the stock chassis to building special built cars. These are the original doors from Indy. They were taken down in 1985, and that's the last dirt car to run at Indy, right there, 1956. And this car was a Curtis, and I'm sorry to say it killed three drivers in four years. Killed Dick Linder, Van Johnson, and Hugh Randall. Here's, uh, that's Dick Linder. That was Gus's brother that I raced with. He went over the wall at Trenton. Car wouldn't hurt bad, but it killed him. And there he was going over the wall. Then they put Van in it. That was a Langhorn. He won that day. There he was at the Grove. There the throttle stuck in bars of the car, and he got killed at the Williams Grove. Killed a driver, won a race, killed a driver. And then two years later, that's Hugh Randall. He got killed at Langhorn in it. Now, this is kind of interesting. Al Keller drove the car at Indy. Now, he got killed in 1960, not in this car. He had a young daughter. She grew up, moved out to Phoenix, and married a Bush. His grandsons are Kyle and Kurt Bush. That's awesome. Now, this is kind of a racing shop. There's all kind of stuff in there that tells a lot of stories. And also, we use the shop. That was Mario's pit board when he ran Langhorn for the first time right there. Tommy gave us that. That's Thompson right there in a Dr. Saborian car. I love how original a lot of these pieces are. You go to some museums and everything's fully restored and just beautiful and now, shiny. Now, if I had my choice, if we get it in, and I don't care if it's shop-worn, I'd rather see the original piece. It's just like that one motorcycle, that hill climber back there. 1936 National Champion. Just It's, it's so crude, it's so neat. I think it's really neat. Now, this is one of Mario's cars, C3 and 1. The Mataka owned it, and they carried that on. But here's Mario when it was a Dean Van Line car. Now this car, uh, it was bought out of the Mataka estate. That's what it looked like. Now A.J. Watson built that car. That's Champ Dirt car. Here's the baby Bows. This ran Indy. It also won the Indy race at the Grove in 1950 with Troy Rutman in it. In 49, Tommy drove, I think Tommy got a fifth with it at the Grove. And there's Rutman, he ran it also. There's uh, Cosworth. Actually, Al Unser Jr., that was a block he won Indy with. We got a little everything. Here, we'll walk out here. That's McGuire, Andretti, and Foyt's around the other side. More displays in this building. It yep. just keeps going. You're going to see this stuff coming in that hadn't been sorted yet. So this okay. is the prep area, yeah. Yeah, and we have cars and we have stuff back over there. And then we have another 50 by 100 building over in the next property. And there's about 16 cars over there. But I can't take you over there because we don't have an occupancy permit for that yet. You're still acquiring cars from all over the country, right? Or are most of these just east of the Mississippi? Our interest is east. We don't want a car that has no history in this area. So we would probably turn something like that down. But I don't care where it's from. If, if it did well here in the east, that's, that's our realm of responsibilities. Most of the stuff is east. So have any of the cars from here, as you said, they go on loan to other locations and back and forth? Yeah, have well, Sprint Car Hall of Fame in Knoxville, Iowa, Speedy Bill's Place. And do you guys do anything with the uh, IMRC up in Watkins Glen, International Motor Racing? Yes, that's more of an informational thing with them. They're always interested in, in what we have. We share documents with them, yes. No, this is very cool. So this is pretty much where the tour stops, right? Pretty much. As a caretaker, as a docent for the museum, for those people that are interested in coming out, what are kind of the rules, the fees, the times you can be here, things well, like that? Well, we're free. There is no charge. We accept donations. We're open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, 10 to 4. 
you have a lot of high schools that bring kids in to, to check this out? Not a lot. I've had more, but Bermuda Springs, my daughter's a teacher there. She usually once a year brings a class over. And there's times that we'll take a car over there too and do certain things. New Oxford, same thing, you know. We're open to any organization that wants to come. I'll tell you what we do get. We get a lot of special need people. They'll bring a bus here. They enjoy walking around and they use this place quite a bit because they can go have a little lunch down here in the picnic tables and what have you. We're interested in kids. That's why we have Pine Box Derby. We've got cars for them to sit in. You know, a lot of museums shun the kids. We don't. We give them race cars and stuff. They'll show up with their grandparents, with their neighbors, because they enjoyed. The kids are the key to the whole thing. You can't run them off. You know, the future of the sport. Now, every once in a while you get one that's a little rowdy that you got to pay attention to. You know, you try to explain it to whoever's with them. Say, look, there's certain things. It's just like we have cars on loan. What I have to do is I have to protect that stuff. The kids, so you don't yeah. have to get hurt. Yeah, that's true. Everybody here is a volunteer. There's nobody paid here. Most of the time you have volunteers like that, their interests are such that they care. You know, and that's that's the main thing. And I saw the donation box up front. Obviously, you guys take donations as part of the exhibits for the yes. museum, but are there other fundraising ways that people can contribute to the museum? We have blocks that we sell on the wall where people want to memorialize certain people. Matter of fact, I said Mario and his wife before she passed away bought a block on our walls. So, oh, there's lots of ways. We do raffles and have sales through... Mike, the guy was running around blowing up the tires. Mike has charge of our raffles and stuff. And actually, Mike, as of right now, I'm not the curator anymore. Mike is. I resigned at the end of the last past month. But I agreed to do this interview, so I said I would do it and explain that. We know. appreciate that. So in closing, any like shout-outs, promotions, or anything else you'd like to share that people should know about? Well, it's just our website lets you know we have a schedule for the year that we go to different racetracks and do different things here. And uh, we'll be operating right up. I know in December, our open house is, I think, the first Sunday in, in December. And our subject matter is going to be uh, Bobby Gerhardt and Billy Gerhardt. I race with Bobby's father. And, of course, Bobby won Daytona seven or eight, maybe nine times. And Billy was is his mechanic and brother, and they got some great stories to tell. I'm going to try to get Davey Brown to come over, too. He was a mechanic back then. So, yeah, we've got something going on all the time. Through the winter, January through when we open the beginning of April, is every Thursday night we work. We have a work party. So anybody that wants to come out and have a good time, six to nine is our normal work party. And it's not all work. It's a lot of fun, too. To learn more about the Eastern Museum of Motor Racing, be sure to look them up on Facebook at Eastern Museum of Motor Racing or visit their website, www.emmr.org. The museum also needs your help, and they are always looking for volunteers, so stop by when you have the chance. The museum is open to the public April through November on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from 10 to 4 p.m. Well, Lynn, I can't thank you enough for doing this for us, taking us on this tour, telling us this story. And the importance of this is that museums are more than just a bunch of stuff sitting around that people come and look at. Cars, especially race cars, are more than just objects going around in a circle. To your point, and what you've been telling us this entire time is each one of these pieces, from the smallest one to the biggest car yeah. here, has a story behind it. And that's super important to share. We don't put things up to fill a hole. 
it has to tell a story. Because I get people that want to donate us something because it's a beautiful race car. And my first question, what's the history? Well, I don't know, but it's a pretty race car. I said, I have no interest. But it's pretty. I said, pretty has very little to do with it. Some of the neatest stuff we have is ugly as a sin. Some people think it has to be pretty to be in a museum. We're not that way. If it tells a story, then it's, it's a new museum piece. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.